third podcast of, uh, of what does natural wine taste like we really need a name for this podcast oh <laughs> uh through the grapevine pod yeah we'll come up with a better one later you guys can give us some ideas we're not into very creative. the vine into the vine yeah that would work all right, so a lot of people uh, first come to us and they haven't had natural wine before or they're doing an introduction to it. That's why we created the whole like starter kit and all that because it's clear that a lot of people are interested in it but intimidated by what it is, what it isn't. Uh, there's a lot of rumors going around about out there about how it tastes like crap, <laughs> and obviously that's definitely possible. Bongar, cow poop. Yeah, mousy. Blah, blah, blah. There's a skunk, rotten eggs, like literally uh, curry. Uh, and just like all rumors, just to kind of uh, get this out there, you know, all rumors are kind of founded in some for- form of truth, right? And there definitely are wines that are made, natural wines that are made, you know, without as much care or too quickly or whatever um, that maybe have like those kinds of qualities, right? So, you know, this podcast here isn't going to be about, you know, touting how awesome natural wine is only, you know, we want to talk about both the good and the bad side of natural wine. But the point is to start that everything that Nick just mentioned is also possible with conventional wine. It's not just natural wine that has it. Obviously, though, there's a bit, you know, when something's made naturally, it is definitely possible that there's a bit more variation across the wines because they're still living, breathing things. Exactly. So the first thing that we'll talk about is that natural wine can basically taste like any regular wine. Like everyone assumes that there's this certain funkiness to it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But actually, natural wine can taste just like any regular wine out there. You might not even know it's natural. Yeah, totally. While it does sometimes trend towards like, you know, lower alcohol, lighter wines, you know, there definitely are really cool expressions of wines that you wouldn't even know um, were a natural wine, right? So a couple that we're hoping to bring in at the beginning of quarter one, you know, are like oaky and high alcohol and you know, you really would have no idea that it was naturally made, right? But um, the point is that it can be kind of just whatever. So that's the first one, and that's basically the main point of section one. It can taste like regular wine. Section one, done. <laughs> yes. Section two takes a little bit more time. That is basically um, there are certain qualities that are more likely to be found in natural wine, Um, And that's where you start to hear about funky or funk or funkiness in a wine. And what we're going to do is we're basically going to kind of walk through what does that mean? Because funk can be a number of things within the wine. Um, Some of them can be considered flaws. Some of them can just be considered attributes of the wine. And it's really tough for some people, even when you're really experienced in natural wine, to even be able to pick that out sometimes so we're going to be able we're going to walk you through what that could taste like and then obviously it's up to you to decide whether you like it or not exactly so the first one we're going to talk about is volatile acidity um you know acid is incredibly important to pretty much any wine right i really like uh, very acidic wines like riesling um those types of wines that you know have a really strong kind of acid backbone and it's super important for pretty much any wine and honestly like if you cook, right, any food, you know, it needs some kind of acid to counteract things like, this is for cooking, but like fat or whatever. Um, but when it gets to be a little bit out of control is when it would be considered volatile acidity. Yeah, so some, I think there's actually a level for it, and I don't know what the actual like acid level is, but there's like the Court of Master Sommeliers will basically say that after a certain level, it is a flaw. Um, but 
the way that I like to look at it and the way that you can consider it, you know, for is this good or bad for the wine is basically like, is the wine balanced? So is it having this kick of acidity and it's like, holy crap, I don't taste anything because my tongue is watering so bad because that's what acid does. It makes your tongue water. That's how you know how high the acid is. So if your tongue is on fire from all the acidity, um, that is potentially too much. Um, if it is just a really nice freshness that's added because it's a really intense wine and that much acid is needed to combat the sugar or something else in it, then that works. And it's really up to you to decide. Um, and one note on volatile acidity, if you are feeling that, it can normally blow off. So if you taste it and you're like, holy crap, this thing is really volatile, you can throw it in a decanter um, and, you know, depending on the wine, could take 15 minutes, could take a day, depending on how, you know, bad it is, um, it will typically blow off. So just open that up, keep trying it, and it should go away. And if it doesn't, then you just know that that one was indeed too much. Yes. Um, so after that, we'll move into oxidative. Uh, so one really important thing to think about when you're talking about oxidative wines is the difference between oxidized, which is kind of like, you know, it's gone bad, right? It's had too much contact with, um, oxygen or whatever, and it's not stable. It doesn't taste good, uh, versus oxidative. So oxidative is a nice thing that you can find in wines. Sherry's are looking for this, um, and it essentially creates the sort of like nuttiness or um other characteristics like madeirization i guess is like the word that they use to describe how it's going towards being bad so there's a few steps between you know oxidative and oxidized uh, and it's pretty easy to understand when it should and should not happen if you try it and it's like super nutty and going in the wrong direction or it's just a grape that shouldn't have that you're like okay well this is probably oxidized um if it goes really really far that's what we were talking about earlier where you can get some nice flavors of curry or wet socks so you'll know you'll definitely know if it's gone too far Uh, it'll also get a little bit brown if it's oxidized or too brown exactly so it's not an orange wine it's like brown you don't want that no and then another one um, we'll move into now is uh, cidery. So we love cider. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but what cidery basically means is that it is getting qualities where it's starting to uh, go towards like potentially bruised apples. So that's like if it's, you're in the bruised apple section and it's not tasting good, you know that it's gone too far. Um, but the reason that this happens a little bit more with natural wines is that grapes are typically fermenting a lot quicker than, uh, say, like an apple would ferment or a pear might ferment. Um, But when it's not controlled, you know, all natural wines go through spontaneous fermentation, so they take the time that they need to actually turn into wine versus when it's controlled with controlled yeast and temperature, they can make that process go boom really quick. And so that cidery quality is a lot less likely to happen with a conventional wine. And there's one uh, producer that we really love that Nick can speak to that has this quality. And that's when you find it and you're like, ooh, this is delightful versus when you're like, no. Yeah. For those of you in New England or who have access to these wines, um, La Gargista in Vermont is definitely making wines with cidery qualities and not just because she also makes cider. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she ha- is able to create these wines that, you know, have a, just a little bit of touch of that um, kind of like cidery 
slight effervescence feel to them that isn't uh isn't overpowering you know it's not like you're eating a rotten apple or whatever um so she does a really excellent job like with that and this is a very cool list kind of the the first ones that we're going through generally just because you know in small quantities these uh these qualities are actually can be considered good you know people can enjoy them it's when they go too far uh all of these that we're talking about right now is when it's kind of a you know not good and just to before we move on to the next one just to reiterate you know people like to over categorize all qualities that are weird in a line as funky um and this is just basically giving you that vocabulary to be able to say this wine is funky because it seems a bit oxidized or it seems to be cidery um so that's how you know you can tell the difference between why does this not taste like a wine that i'm used to drinking so the next one on our list is brett which probably quite a few of you have already heard of um it's a type of yeast the longer name is Brettomyces. Um, that's found in quite a few vineyards, but you know historically it's been associated with like unclean winemaking or you know not doing a good job of sanitizing, etc. Um, obviously, when you're making natural wine, you're using wild yeasts that you know are just floating around in the air. You're not actually inducing fermentation with yeast, so you sometimes get a little bit more of that kind of bready touch to it. And that can taste like barnyard people say it tastes like a horse smells like a horse but that doesn't have to be a bad thing some people really like that yeah and it can blow off too and it's actually pretty common there's places like bordeaux where they are purposely creating it to taste like that so even in the conventional wine world there is uh you know brett is something that people will look past and decide that is okay exactly and then one other one um, is reduction. So a wine can either be, you know, completely, I, I don't actually know what the bad word of this would be, reduced, completely Reduc reduced. Reductive, reductive, a little bit reductive would be okay. Like a little bit oxidative would be okay. Right, yeah, I guess. And if it's oxidated reduce. to oxidize, no, oxidative to oxidize, it might be. Oxidize is no good. So. Cider-ish, cider is no good. Cidery is okay. <laughs> so reducti reducti i don't think that's it but that's what we're gonna go with um so reductive wines can be great they add some complexity to the wine that's where you can sometimes get some smokiness to them um but it's actually this is one of them where it's really easy to go too far quickly so if you're starting to go from you know nice smokiness to things like burned rubber like that smoke is actually burned rubber then you don't want you don't want that wine um, there's also people call skunk, they say rotten eggs. Um, so that one's really not great, but I did actually learn a really cool tip from uh, natural wine for the people that Alice firing book. Um, she said that if you have an oxidative wine, it might not be too late to save it. What you can do is you can decant it. Basically, if anything is going wrong, try decanting it because a lot of times it will help. And if that's not working, apparently you can drop a penny into it because something from the copper will help to neutralize all that stinkiness in there. So Clean the penny first. <laughs> yeah, clean the penny first. Hey, it's alcohol. Doesn't alcohol clean things anyways? I don't know. Anyways, you know, if you really want to try and save it, if it was a really cool bottle and you know that it could be better, uh, that is that is one thing you can try. For sure. And then the last one we have on here uh, isn't really a flavor, but it's something that can induce things like mouthfeel creaminess. Uh, yesterday we talked about um, David Large and Beaujolais and how they decided not to filter one of those wines because they liked it better 
um, you know, with the sediment. And sediment is the one we're going to talk about here. So sediment is basically just a mix of the things that are left over from the grapes. Normally, the majority of it is yeast, but it can also be particles from the skin or the um, seeds as well. And if they're not finding or filtering the wines, you're going to still find those in there. Um, And what you can do is you can basically just sit the bottle up, let it chill if you need to let it chill, and then decant it so that the sediment doesn't um, actually get into your glass. But if you were wondering, it's okay if you end up drinking it and it... It won't kill you. No, it's actually totally fine. They're basically just like little granules and they taste like little granules. They don't really taste like too much of anything. They would taste exactly what you expect, like a little granule, yeasty, grapey. I think the next move in a natural wine is going to be people just drinking sediment <laughs> shots. <laughs> sediment shots right from the bottom. I hope not. So that's pretty much what we had for kind of qualities that are different from conventional wine that you might find. To recap, those were uh, VA, or volatile acidity, uh, oxidative, oxidation, uh, cidery qualities, reductive, reduction, uh, bretomyces, and you might see a little bit of sediment. And then, if that didn't scare you off yet, (laughs) uh, there is another list that are considered faults by everyone. So what we just mentioned, you know, is on a range. It's a continuum of absolutely delicious to totally disgusting. Um, And then there are a few others that doesn't matter who you are. uh, You are really not going to think that that's a great wine. So the easiest one that you know uh, from any wine is cork taint. And uh, what that basically means is the uh, bottle was essentially like the cork allowed something to get into it and so it starts to smell like wet cardboard or your grandma's basement this one in particular i feel like everyone has a very specific example of what it smells like to them and if you smelled it and tried it it's going to bring back some childhood memory that you'd forgot about and wanted wanted to keep forgetting about until that moment yeah it's it's pretty clear honestly like you can tell from smelling the cork or from smelling the wine after you open it it just it's just off And that's something that can happen with all wines. And one thing that I just want to note with that is that a lot of times um, it's not just one bottle, but it might be an entire case that happened like that. So uh, it actually, a lot of times people people feel bad returning wines, but the people that are selling them want to know because, you know, if they they don't want to keep selling a bottle or a case of wine that is off. Um, so don't ever feel bad giving back a wine with cork taint. Like if it's teeny tiny bit, maybe you can decant it and it'll blow off. But like it is really unlikely. Like this is one that you just want to let go and, you know, alert the troops, alert the media, whatever, alert the people that it is not right. Exactly. Um, do you want to talk about mousiness, mouse right now? Sure. Uh, mouse is a really fun one. Mouse is a... Definitely considered by everyone in the wine world as a flaw, although I will say that some people actually love it. Um, And the reason that we think that's happening is the taste of it is a bit like uh, kombucha. Like you feel it at the back of your mouth. So when you're trying a wine and you actually like are, you know how there's like you can smell through the back of your mouth, it comes through there. Um, And it can be anything from, you know, like a kombucha type flavor. Some people call it puppy breath. And what really happens is a lot of times it'll come after a wine has been open for a while. Um, So 
if you're getting, you know, like it starts out and you're like, wow, this wine tastes great. And then all of a sudden at the end, the finish is like, whoa, whoa, where, what just happened here? That is when you might be getting mouse. Um, yeah. And this one's related to, uh, to yeast as well. And it's actually not something that you'll get on the nose as much as right. uh, like Holly was saying, you know, when you actually taste it, Back it tastes like weird, like mousy, mousy. Yeah. I don't know. And this is, <laughs> this is one, again, it's totally fine to ask for them to uh, replace the bottle, replace the glass over that. Yeah. And it's not super common. I actually don't know that I've ever even had a mousy wine. I think I've only had one and uh, I don't think I actually knew what mouse was at that time. So it's like, this tastes like pee. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Uh, and then the other one that is an absolute flaw we already talked about a bit, that's oxidized. So again, you know, if it smells gross like curry, just say no. All right. And then now for some more fun parts of natural wine, things that are just different ways, different styles uh, that you wouldn't traditionally see in um, conventional wine that are delicious and you should be really excited about. Exactly. So the first one we have, uh, you know, if you're really into natural wine, you've probably heard of glue glue before. Um, you know, I think there's like 7 billion t-shirts that say it now. And if you're really hip, you definitely have one. Um, but it's really like wines that are super easy to drink. Like I said, uh, a lot of natural wines typically are lighter in alcohol. They might have like carbonic maceration or something that gives them like this fruity bubble gumness. And they're the kinds of wines that you basically sip and you want to keep drinking and then you finish a bottle. Yeah, these are ones, these, this glue glue movement is basically how natural wine got its rep as being, you know, non-ageable, just right, completely, yeah, just very, I, I think the, uh, what was it, the New York Post posted about um, being natural wines just pairing with your spicy Cheetos and bulgogi tacos and who cares because you're just there to get drunk and drink a lot right and that is all coming from this von de soif or glue glue movement because you know it started in France quite a while back and everyone wanted to have these fresher lighter delicious wines and that's exactly what they are they're super delicious they're great and they're not the only thing that's out there exactly um after that another style of wine that you'll often see made uh, naturally would be orange wines. Um, so orange wines, if you're a member of our wine club, you've gotten a couple already and I hope you're not too freaked out. Um, but they're basically like wines, white wines that have been fermented on the skins for an extended amount of time. So typically what you'll do with a white wine is you'll just press it pretty much immediately. Um, and not let it have a ton of skin contact. Uh, an orange wine could have anywhere from like a few days to a few weeks to even a few months of extended time on the skins that kind of extracts like uh, the tannins and the color from the grapes themselves. Um, and it actually makes them literally orange. Yeah. And everyone thinks that this is like new and I guess it is, I mean, it's new and hip, but it is actually the oldest style of winemaking in the world. Um, and that kind of goes into another section we were talking, we will talk about, which is like amphora winemaking. But basically, winemaking started in Georgia, the state, or sorry, the country, not the state. The state. <laughs> the state. Um, like thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's really typical uh, for people to actually find white wines like that in history because um, when you're not using stabilizing agents that like conventional wines will use, they'll just add in a bunch of stuff to keep that white wine stable. Um, keeping it on the skins is actually a natural way to preserve that wine. So it's really common to find it in natural wines because it's a really great way to have a nice expression of that grape without also having to add anything to it. 
So let's go ahead and just chat about amphoras there while you kind of see this in there. <clears throat> amphoras are a really, really old uh, wine-making vessel, like Holly said, that originated in Georgia. Um, typically, it's made of clay, right? Yeah. So it's made of clay, and it's kind of shaped like a egg, almost. Yeah, it's like an egg, but then like if it like had a really uh, pointy bottom. Right, exactly. And the way that it works um, and why they are historically like the first things used to uh, make wine is because it actually helped you filter the wine just based on the shape of the vessel of the corvi, I think is what it's called in Georgia, amphora, we can call it. So um, because of that pointed bottom, all of the sediment and everything that, you know, you don't want to um, have in the bottle goes to the bottom. So instead you can just bottle straight from the top um, and you're less likely to have sediment in it. That said, also, if there are amphora made wines, especially from Georgia, um, they do the same thing now, but they will bottle all the way to the bottom. So uh, you'll every once in a while get a bottle that just has a ton of sediment because it was down yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> Vanessa's uses amphoras, don't they? Yeah, so we have a couple of really cool examples of um, amphora wines with our Spanish producer, Vanessa's. They um, have several different types, pretty much an entire series of wines, which we couldn't get because they already sold out in Spain. But to the two that we have right now um, are, one is absolutely crazy. It's called Flor de Mata. And what they do is they use that amphora and then they let the uh, layer of floor um, come to the top and it basically creates a cap for it. And they leave it exposed for two years um, with the skins and with that floor. And so it's super orange and it has some of those sherry characteristics and a bit of like nuttiness to it um, from that floor. So really fun winemaking styles with amphora. And there's a lot of sediment in it. Yes, and there's a lot of sediment. <laughs> um, so after chatting a little bit about clay, let's talk about ceramic then. Uh, this is definitely kind of a newer trend that you're seeing um, in natural wine is people using ceramic bottles. So like, you know how people sometimes use like uh, milk jugs that aren't totally clear or whatever. Um, ceramic bottles kind of the same concept. It basically is used to not allow quite as much light into the bottle um, to kind of preserve the integrity of the wine. And they're just a really fun way to store wine that, again, I think is a historic way of doing it that some people and are starting to bring back. And it's obvious that natural winemakers would be the first likely choice to do that. Yeah, I actually have a beer somewhere back home that is stored in a ceramic bottle that's like two or three years old that I still haven't opened yet kind of cool yeah and then the last one that we'll talk about today is um pet nap and there's also colfondo basically there's two ancient versions of making sparkling wine that is not champagne um and in french it's called petillant naturel which basically just means you know natural bubbles little little bubbles in it and um what they do is the champenois method is they basically pop the bottle, add in um, more wine and more sugar so that the wine can re-ferment in the bottle um, and then they put the cork on and it goes through that secondary fermentation. Um, Petnat basically just halves that. They don't actually do the second portion where they add a dosage of sugar to it and let it re-ferment. Instead, they just let the wine begin to uh, ferment and before it's actually finished fermenting, they will um, cap it so that it gets all carbonated on the inside. Um, and then depending on the style of pet nat, 
pretty much all of them disgorge at first, but some of them don't. So once it actually uh, referments in the bottle, they disgorge it by putting it underwater and letting all the sediment shoot out. Um, and then they recap it uh, at the end. So again, no no addition of sugar to it, just regular one fermentation with a pop-off and recap. Yeah, and those ones can be under quite a bit of pressure too. So some are too pressurized to even import because you know we don't want like a whole... Palette of pet nat exploding on a boat somewhere um that'd be disaster so and we have some really fun pet nats um one we have already is oracular and another that we're bringing in from uh, alsace is a pinot noir pet nat uh, that is heavier like a red almost like a lambrusco so two really cool examples of that and pet nat is definitely very popular right now um again just like orange wine it seems very new but it's i actually you know just a blast from the very ancient past that is now getting a revival. Exactly. So that's kind of it. The last thing we'll talk about is that natural wine can be delicious. We think it is generally. (laughs) We love it. Um, The way that most people end up getting into natural wine is they try one. They don't know what it is and why it has this funk, which we've now defined as all of these different things that could be a part of the wine. Um, And it's just tastes generally more alive. Like the wine really is developing as it's in the bottle, as it's opened, as you're drinking it. And it's just a really fun and like delicious way to drink wine. It also, you know, they have all sorts of studies that say it may or may not be super healthy for you, et cetera. But a nor- like a, it's pretty obvious just to think that if you don't add a bunch of extra stuff that's not supposed to be in the wine to the wine, it's logically probably a bit healthier than something that has a bunch of additives. Exactly. So hope uh, you found this educational. If there are any other qualities in natural wine or in wine uh, generally that you want to chat about, uh, just leave a note in the comments. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.